0: Good morning church. Good morning. Glad to be back with you. Your name is Brandissy Lee Pastor. Our heartbeat here is to be a church that is simply all about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, he alone is what matters. And when you encounter him, it literally changes everything in your life. And that's why we as a church, we strive to help others to meet, know, and follow Jesus. We're going to jump right into it this morning. But I want to just kind of throw this back out there. I'm going to resurrect um, after the sermon podcast. We're going to be doing that as a church, having conversations with the staff. But also for me, we're going to have some supplemental um, talking our uh, points of revelation because I don't know if you've been catching a pattern here every Sunday. We are not finishing the topic at hand because there's a lot to go through. And so what we want to do is provide some supplemental material for you. So we're going to be having anything that I don't cover this morning on the Church of Pergamum, we're going to cover on the podcast. And so I want to encourage you to be aware for that. Um, so just as a reminder, revelation it's ultimately designed to stir up the church. It's not designed to give us a predictive model of world history to be able to know when and what and who and how everything is gonna happen. It's meant ultimately to stir us up out of complacency, out of potential compromise, to encourage the church, to move the church, to inspire deeper and more affectionate worship of the risen Lord and to live as those who overcome because of the Lamb. Jesus, as we see over and over in this letter, he is revealing the unseen realities behind the curtain. Revelation is the word apocalypse and not the way we understand apocalypse today like a zombie invasion. It simply means in the Greek, it's a revealing... So when we hear the letter of revelation, Jesus is pulling back the curtain so that you and I can see the unseen realities that we normally don't see in this world. We need to be able to perceive what was, what is, and what will be. And for the believer who trusts on Jesus for life, for forgiveness of sins, there is no greater letter to inspire beauty, to move us to love and to hope and to action. It's not meant to scare the believer to live in this posture of fear and wondering and want to build a bomb shelter and start to predict which nation and country is the Antichrist. And did I just take whatever symbol and now do I have the mark of the beast? It's none of that. It's meant to inspire greater discipleship. And if it's meant to inspire a greater discipleship, it's meant ultimately to cultivate a heart of worship. So revelation as we've been saying is not about trying to figure out when things are. It's not about prediction, it's about perception. Do you see what God is doing? Do you see what God is revealing? We also have been saying it, that it's not a book of speculation, but it's a book of discipleship. We're not called to be looking at this to get this sense of like, when are we going to be raptured out of this world? No, it's meant to stir us up to find ourselves living faithfully. In the world that God has placed us in. And what I wanna do this morning is to dig into one more. If it's not about prediction, but a perception, if it's not about speculation, about discipleship, I wanna add one more layer. It's not about information, Revelation is primarily about worship. It's about worship. And in the context, see, this letter was written in a historical context with seven specific churches in Asia Minor, which we call today Turkey. Those churches existed. This letter was geared towards them. But because of the number seven, we know that the message that was given to these seven churches are applicable for churches of all time. And we know the context. John was exiled because he would not worship Caesar. And the churches in Asia Minor are facing extreme persecution because of their allegiance, because of their loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's in the midst of the churches. He sees and he knows. He cares. He's always going to be coming in a posture of grace and truth. And as we've been discovering for the last few weeks, Jesus speaking to the churches, he's encouraging them. He's affirming them. He's saying, hey, you're doing a great job here. I'm commending you. Well done. And two out of the seven churches don't get any kind of rebuke, but five out of the seven do. Why? Is it because Jesus is mean? Or is it grace? And is it love? Is it meant to stir up the hearts? for greater discipleship, to stir up the hearts and the affections for greater worship. We need Jesus to reveal to us, to pull back the curtain in order for us to see and to know what is and what will be. But not only that, friends, do you realize you can only worship what has been revealed to you? Like, we can only worship what is known. Worship is always their response to revelation. And that's the whole heart of this in the context that these churches are being placed in. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of their compromise, Jesus in his grace and truth wants to stir up their hearts to have them called back to repentance and greater affection and loyalty to Jesus. This is a beautiful letter for the church. And so I'm telling you right now, I want you to be honest and I want you, as best as you can and as courageous as you can, open your heart to the Lord this morning. And I want to ask a question of you personally and of us as a church what needs to be stirred up in you? Is your heart divided? What lures of our present day Babylon have you succumbed to? As we journey in Revelation, friends, you're going to start to see that Jesus loves so much that he's willing to speak truth. And as we see, the characteristic that's shown of the risen Lord in the letter of Pergamum is the one whose mouth comes a double edged sword. Swords cut and they can heal. His word is alive and active. When he speaks truth, it's because he loves. And this is what I want us to wrestle with because we're going to be looking at significant compromise in the church. And how the church has embraced the way of Babylon without even realizing it. And any time the church embraces the way of Babylon, here's a sobering reality. You are following in the footsteps of the dragon. And the dragon is the devil. Because there's only two options really in this world. You're either following the way of the lamb or you're following the way of the dragon. There is no middle ground. There is no, I'm on the bench, I'm just kind of doing my thing. No, it's you're either following the dragon or you're following the lamb. And that is a difficult, difficult thing to hear. So what is it in your heart that needs to be stirred up this morning? Jesus was so crystal clear. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. You will be faithful to one and you will be unfaithful to the other. But so many of us, we have deceived ourselves into thinking we can do both. And as we see in the text this morning when Mary Ellen read that, I hope there was this little bit of a, are we really going to go there this morning? Are we going to talk about sexual morality? Are we going to talk about greed? Are we going to talk about politics? Are we going to talk about power structures? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we are. Because it's what God's word is showing us and what our hearts desperately need to hear. Because if we're not careful, friends, listen, Babylon is not just the world we live in. But if we do not remain vigilant in our obedience and our loyalty to Jesus as a church, Babylon creeps into the church. And that's what we see in the church of Pergamum. Now, before, before we get into it, like I'm already starting to use these symbols and these metaphors of the dragon and Babylon and beast one and beast two. Some of you who have been steeped in Revelation, you're like, oh yeah, the dragon and the beast and like, yes, and the mark of the beast and all the things. Like, I want to give us handles so we can understand what John is showing us as these images are being revealed to him and how you and I today in a church can live with this posture of being aware of the schemes of the dragon, being aware of the seduction of Babylon and how the beast one and beast two, I just call them beast one and beast two because I don't know what else to call them, like how they influence us and how they seduce us into following the way of the dragon. So first and foremost, I need us to ask the question, why doesn't Jesus in the early parts of this letter reveal to us the ultimate demise of the dragon? Why doesn't Jesus in the early part of Revelation give the church a clear picture of the justice that his kingdom will bring Especially when the churches of Asia Minor are facing extreme persecution. And when John, the beloved disciple, is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Like, wouldn't you want to know what God's going to do with evil? But that's not how Jesus sets up Revelation. And that's something that's rather intriguing and challenging for me. And so, like, right away in chapter 1, like, John, he, he sets this whole letter up in a posture of worship right? Revelation 1, 5, to the one who loves us, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And then John goes on, hey, on a Sunday, on the Lord's day, when I was worshiping, I was caught up in the spirit. It's written in a posture of worship. And all of a sudden I heard a voice behind me, a voice that was distinct and yet familiar. And when I turned, I saw him. And when I saw him, it was like someone I knew, but totally altogether different because now it's the resurrected Lord, full of humanity and full of deity and I fell as though dead and you see this beautiful picture of Jesus with the the robe and the sash and the eyes and the feet of bronze and all these things and he's walking amidst of his churches and then from there you would think again that Jesus would be like hey John tell the churches I'm kicking the dragons butt. we ready to feed it in I'm gonna lock him up and we're gonna be good hang tight but he doesn't do that what he does is he starts to talk to the seven churches in the areas where they have compromised their worship, except two. One of them was last week. How would you like to be in the church of Smyrna? Hey, things are hard. Way to go. It's going to get worse. Hang tight. Satan is going to throw some of you in prison and kill you Probably. Look at the first church. They withstood external persecution, the church in Ephesus, but internal compromise happened. They abandoned their love. That matters to Jesus. So their loves were out of order. They were doing things, but not out of the posture of love. And Jesus is like, hey, return back to love. And now in the church of Pergamum, we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see the same thing that Ephesus was doing. Hey, great job. You are withstanding persecution, but internal compromise is rampant. And what we're going to see in Pergamum is that they didn't abandon the love per se. They're distorting the truth they're embracing I'm going to say words that are like culturally sensitive they were embracing a theology of tolerance not all somewhere and there were some people in the church that just didn't want to deal with conflict so they just let them do their thing while in the church compromise was happening and Jesus comes and he speaks to that Oh, then you would think after addressing all seven churches, hey, now let's get to the dragon. Let's deal with the dragon. Let's destroy the empire of Babylon. Let's remove the beast. No, what you see next is an open door to the throne room of God. And what you see is cosmic worship at epic proportions. 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And this is a representation of all of humanity. And they're bowing down before the Lord, casting their crowns before him. There's four living beasts. And all they're doing is night and day without ceasing worshiping him and then chapter 5 nope no judgment yet you see now the lamb who looked as though slain was on his throne and you see worship and then finally after painting five chapters of worship finally moves into the judgment finally moves into the seals finally moves into the trumpets and the bowls and some of you are like what are we talking about? We'll get there. Like, but in, in between each thing, in between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we're interrupted with heavenly worship over and over and over and over, almost as if Jesus is revealing to us, you want to know how to overcome? Worship. It's like the sole spiritual discipline that revelation gives us and how to remain faithful is worship. And here's the thing. You're going to worship. There is not one person in this room who is not worshiping. Not one. That's who you were created to be. We are dependent creatures and we give affection, loyalty, and praise to something always. We are worshipers. And we are living in a world that is influenced by the dragon who constructed empires known as Babylon. That is an all-time metaphor meant to seduce people away from worshiping Jesus. He's an imitator. He's a counterfeit. He creates things and offers the same kind of promises that God does, but it's cotton candy. Jesus said in John ten ten, the enemy comes to steal. What does he steal? Your heart. And as he gets your heart, he slowly begins to kill. Your heart gets calloused. You lose peace. You lose joy. Anxiety creeps up. Greed creeps in. All of the marks of Babylon show up in your life. And if you're not careful, and if you don't finally come to a place of repentance, your ultimate end is destruction. But Jesus in his grace says, I have come as the lamb to bring life and life to the full. These are the themes of revelation. It's not prediction, it's not speculation, it's not information, it's a picture book that shows us the throne room of God so that you and I could get ourselves in a posture of worship. Worship is never passive. Church, listen, worship is never passive. It's always active. You're always doing something. Worship is always an act. It's not just an ideology. It is something you do. And worship matters because you become like that which you worship. This is why Jesus tells the truth. Because he cares about what is shaping your heart. We live in a time when truth is not sexy. I'm sorry, it's just not. We're afraid of confronting. In fact, if we try to confront, we do it in the most jerk-like way often. But how do we approach it like Jesus where we come in grace and truth to understand the posture and the motive behind the heart of our risen Lord? He doesn't convict us of our sin and our waywardness just to make us feel bad. He does it because he wants to bring life. Worship changes us. Worship shapes us. Worship is always something that's active, that moves into an expression. And some of the expressions that we see in Revelation are so telling. Bowing down bowing down, casting crowns. Everything that I thought I earned, all of my achievements, my self-importance, all of the things I want to attain in my life, I'm casting my crown at his feet. You see people encircling the throne of the Lamb constantly. And Why is that important? That means that people who are loyal to the Lamb are constantly focusing on where Jesus is. He's on the throne. We're focusing on the fact that he is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He has all-authority. But not just that. Because what we'll see in Revelation 4 is, oh my goodness, when we look at the throne, we see beauty like never before. We stand, they're standing in awe, in silence. Just beautiful pictures. There's music, all sorts of music in Revelation. You think we repeat phrases? They never cease saying holy. And friends, neither would we if we saw him we get a little weary, like, oh, we're saying the same thing. How many minutes now? Are you seeing him? You see how Babylon can creep in? This is tough stuff. In the uttering of the amen, so be it. Worship is important. In church, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, I love what he says here. We should not be outwitted by Satan. We are not unaware of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his designs. How does the dragon come against the people of God? Let's look at now Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Write to the angel of the church. In Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Like, this is beautiful. Because right here, if you were just to like note, just write down Hebrews 4. You can go there where it says that, like, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's a sharp double-edged sword, and it comes and it pierces, it cuts right to the heart of the matter. I know where you live. Like, that's meant to be encouraging, not like he's creeping and stalking. He's like, I know where you live. I understand what you're facing. I know the culture that's coming at you. I know how you're standing and how you remain loyal. But I also know what's happening within the church where Satan's throne is. Now, this, I'm going to come back to this, but this is not literal, like Satan's camp is not set up in Pergamum. This is a re- reference to um, the emperor cult. The first temple where Caesar was worshiped was given. Uh, Pergamum was given the ability to build it. So the first time Caesar was worshiped was in Pergamum, which is known as Satan's throne. But not only that, now I'm going off on a tangent. When you come into Pergamum, you would see up on the rock would what, what be this massive temple to Zeus. And, and at the altar of Zeus would be what is front and center. It would say Zeus is Soter or Zeus is Savior. It was like, oh, here's the throne of Satan because the feet of Zeus, get this, was a serpent. Oh, it wasn't, this isn't just accidental, friends. This, this is highly intentional of the dragon. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. What Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum was, hey, when the pressure was there, when the persecution was fierce, you stood your ground. And by implication, it's saying, it's not as intense right now. The persecution isn't as heavy as it once was. He's saying, pleased with you, way to go. But this is fascinating because we've seen this now a few times. The mention of Satan. Now, I want for us to understand the significance of Babylon because that is the world we live in. Babylon is not just the literal Old Testament Babylon. Babylon was Rome. Babylon is essentially any nation that props itself up as the superior power. And I think, we're going to talk about this in weeks ahead, but I think it's arrogant for the American church to think that it can't be Babylon. Because oftentimes in dispensational thinking, we go, oh, China's Babylon, Russia's Babylon, Iran is Babylon. They're Babylon, but not us. And and, and we got to be careful on that. Because God's kingdom is never going to be attached to any government. Ever. And when we start to make God's kingdom attached to a government, we're actually being influenced by Babylon. Because that's what they want. They want state-sanctioned type of religion. So they can control the power and the manipulation of people's hearts and minds. More to be said on that down the road. But here I want to give you right now our seven attributes of Babylon given in Revelation 7-8. through And I just want to walk this through for us as we will see this play out in Pergamum. First attribute of Babylon is their anti-God. And when I say they're anti-God, it's not explicit always. It's very much of saying, hey, Man is superior, essentially, right? Worship of Roman emperors in the church here in Revelation, that was very clear. It's very anti-God. In fact, you can have your own private faith as long as you don't say Jesus is exclusively Lord. Then we have a problem. Today in our culture, it's radical secularism. It's humanism, there's like the absolute truth claims to say that Jesus is the only way. All these types of things. It's very anti-God. Greed is another attribute of Babylon. Did you know that? We will see this in Revelation 17, 18, Greed. It's the desire for greater affluence, greater wealth. It's excess luxury. It's opulence. It's that hidden notion. It's right. Maybe it's not like extremely overt, but it's like we get seduced into, I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. To the degree that you are willing to justify behaviors and actions in order to attain more. That's an attribute of Babylon. Rome, massive, massive. Another attribute of Babylon, it's murderous. They, they don't really ultimately care about human life. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Well, how did it achieve the peace of the world? Well, through dominance and execution and oppression. As long as you surrender to the sword of Rome, there's peace. Image. The power and the glory and the splendor of Rome, shown in all of its architectural feats and its monuments and its things, that that grand narrative that Rome is the eternal empire of the world and Caesar is Lord, all of those narratives and all of those values trickle down into individual lives in the culture of Rome. It's the same thing. When we start thinking about our own self-status and my own persona and my own identity, anything, any pursuit of image apart from the image of God is an attribute of Babylon. Militaristic, boasting in its military might and confidence, finds its absolute security in the strength of its army. Over and over we see this about Rome and also its economically exploitative it's like it will, it will enslave people. It doesn't matter as long as they can bring in all of the money. And last and certainly not least is it's arrogant. And what we see, for instance, in Revelation eighteen seven, Rome turned its arrogance into a virtue. That's not the verse, but it says, in her heart, she boasts, I sit as enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow and I will never mourn. Rome will last forever forever. It's the same thing that was said of Babylon in the Old Testament, Isaiah 47, 7. You said, I am forever the eternal queen and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Arrogance in Babylon will always start at the very top of its power structure. This is fascinating because this is the world humanity lives in is not isolated to any one nation anywhere where the dragon has influence he will prop up some sort of government structure power structure religious structure that's called babylon and then he'll prop up two folks called beast 1 and beast 2 to influence and to come against the church it's very systemic and so we as the church when we look at these seven churches God is trying to help us to become aware of the schemes of the enemy, of how he comes in to the church and how he can influence the church. Why am I bringing this up now? Why am I bringing this up now? Jesus was stirring up these churches so that they can learn how to see Babylon was impacting them and influencing them. This is why Jesus needs to stir up the church today so that you and I can be aware of how Babylon is influencing us and impacting us today because this is ultimately about worship. It's about faithful discipleship in this world. And if he cannot, if the dragon cannot mess with us from an external persecution angle. He will begin to meddle on the inside of the church by bringing concepts of Babylon within the flock. And there's three ways in how he does that: By stealing our love. That was the Church of Ephesus. Disordered loves. Any time. Our affection for something else is greater than it is for Jesus. Friends, call it what it is, idolatry. It's the way of the dragon. That's the influence of Babylon. Second, distorted truth. When we start to pick and choose what parts of scripture we will believe and hold on to and what's for today and what's not for today and what, what holds valid today and what doesn't hold valid today and uh, is it guidance or is it absolute? All those types of things. And how will we engage with it? Will, will we just like hear it and be like, oh, that's great. Or will we be like the wise and faithful one who builds his life upon the word of God? Right? And so the church of Pergamum They didn't. They allowed distortion to come on in. And last and certainly not least, where we see the influence of Babylon is corrupted worship. Corrupted worship. Where it's about anything and everything but the Lamb. When we make things about other things, it's corrupted worship. This is why it matters. So I'm asking you to reflect on your heart. What is the Lord stirring in your heart? Like what areas of Babylon have maybe influenced you or affected you? But like Austin Oaks Church, like we need to ask that question as a church too. Like what is it that we need to be stirred up from? Is it like, has our love grown cold as we as a church? Have we abandoned the love we had at first? Have we as a church, like have we like picked and choose what scriptures we're gonna believe in? Or is our worship corrupted? It may be none of them. It may be some of them. That's where we need the Holy Spirit to show us. The battle in Pergamum was a battle of thought. It was a battle of the mind. It was the battle of truth. John Stott, he writes this in relation to this specific letter to the church here a pitched battle was being fought in which the soldiers were not men but ideas and there were two different ideas that were entering into the church the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans and they were both dangerous and ironically they are still both prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ Pergamum was a significant city of idolatry. It it was a very highly educated city. It it, it boasted of one of the largest libraries, where it had over 200,000 scrolls in there. So it was deep thinkers. Deep, deep thinkers. They love philosophy. They love to talk about all sorts of ideas. But also at the same time, there was Caesar worship, but there was two, like two other temples that had great significance. One I already talked about, which was Zeus, but the other one, I'm going to totally mispronounce it, was a skip a Skipilipios, which you will probably recognize. I got an image that you'll recognize if we have it. It's the one of the snake that would be as a symbol of healing. Do you know where that symbol is often on display today? If you don't know, let me show you. It's fascinating. They worshiped, the serpent, and it's the same image of Moses back in Numbers, if you remember when they were bitten by the snakes, and all of a sudden, God's like, you put the snake on, the, on this cross, and if you look to it, right, you'll be healed. Well, the devil loves counterfeit, loves imitation, created a whole cult based on that, and it was actually known that what the priests of this temple would do is if you were sick and you needed healing, they would put you in a dark cave with these snakes, And if you got bit by one, what they would say is you were bitten by the gods and you will be healed. Which is also where you start to make the connection, okay, of the gospels that talks about snake handling. Okay, just, that was for trivia. But like... It's fascinating. This is the culture that they're in. And they were being pushed against and they were withholding from the outside. But what ended up happening was this slow and subtle compromise on the inside. It was a battle of truth. It was a battle of truth, which is why God says, listen, if you do not repent, if you do not repent, as we see, he's like, I'm going to come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. With the word of God, I will come and I will expose their lies with judgment and truth. Repent because the word of God is alive and active. Jesus sounds kind of mean, doesn't he? Right? He's like, hey, if you don't repent, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna take down my church. And it sounds like, wow, he's very intolerant. Especially in a day like we live in where tolerance is exalted as a great virtue. Like, why does Jesus seem so passionately intolerant? It is a simple answer because he loves truth. And because he loves truth, he loves you and he wants you to know the truth because the truth is what sets you free. John 8 32. Anytime we believe in lies, we are enslaved. Anytime we're caught in this bondage of sin and idolatry, it's because there have been lies that are in our heads. Romans 12 tells us to no longer be conformed by this world, but be renewed in our minds so we can discern what is good and pleasing of the will of God. Now the teachings of Balaam, friends, the teachings of Balaam. You can go back to Numbers just you can write this down in your notes, Numbers 22 through 25. And what we see is that a king was trying to convince Balaam to curse the Israelites, but he tried and he couldn't. And so then he came up with a scheme and he told them, he's like, hey, listen, introduce pagan women to them and they'll commit sexual morality with them and that will slowly compromise them. And that's exactly what happened. Sexual sin became a stumbling block to the nation of Israel. Anytime a church celebrates the idols of its culture, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be money. It could be status. It could be power. It will also at the same time slowly tolerate the sexual ethic of its culture. And and I know because the hot topics in the culture today is specifically dealing with like transgender and sexual identity and LGBT and all that kind of stuff. But listen, this isn't just about that. This is also dealing with like the lust of the eyes. This is also dealing with cohabitation and sex before marriage where scripture says, let there not even be a hint of sexual morality amongst you. And why is this so incredibly important for the church of Jesus Christ to stand on the truth? Is it because God's a prude and he thinks sex is bad? Sorry if you're young. (laughs) But not sorry, because you need to hear this because I know you are hearing it. Sex is God's design. Created with a specific design intended for it, husband and wife, in marriage, but why is it just for reproduction no see we are called um when we say like i don't know if you ever heard this but a lot of times people say like you know sex is just a physical thing no big deal no harm casual sex is totally fine it doesn't hurt anybody no big deal and it's so non-scriptural because what the world is doing is saying, well, it's just the physical body. They're ignoring the fact that we, scriptures call us, everything that we have, our mind, body, spirit, and soul is called a soma. That is not just the physical body. It's the full part of who we are. And when you engage in a sexual act with another outside, outside of marriage, you are uniting the somas, which is why after the act, there's this weird bond that seems to happen. Happen. because that's a spiritual reality there is no such thing as casual there's no such thing as no harm no foul when it comes to it in fact Paul even says in scripture that the only sin against the body against the soma is a sexual act why do you think shame is rampant in the area of sexual sin but not so much in anywhere else Because it goes to the core of who we are. Because we're Soma. So when Jesus talks about, hey, stop tolerating the sin of Balaam within the church. It's not because he wants for the church to be good Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and have a good moral ethic. He's like, no, it's going to affect the very heart of worship. Because as you continue to engage in that, you will slowly drift further and further and further away from me you will abandon the love you had at first. Significant issue. And then he starts talking about food with idols, which I'm gonna cover in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but the teachings of the Nicolaitans is basically those who say, guys, you know what? We're saved by grace. Jesus loves us. No big deal. Sin away to which Paul refuted in Romans, shall we sin so that grace abounds? By no means. That's an abuse of grace. But the Nicolaitans were like, hey, free license to sin, go for it. No big deal. Why do you think the church today struggles with a lack of confession? That's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't want to. We don't want to... Admit it we don't want to see it we don't want to bring things into the light oh come on it's old-fashioned really this is a battle of truth and it's not because he's trying to guilt or shame us or make us feel bad and just be sticks in the mud he's like no this is about worship you want life you want freedom you want joy I it made a way for it and I'm speaking truth so that way you can put it aside and I'm gonna give you the power through my Holy Spirit so you can repent and return and move away from the teachings of Balaam and move away from the teachings of Nicolaitans. Friends, I want to encourage you, be careful of the music you listen to and the movies you watch, the podcasts you listen to because worship is never neutral. You hearing me, it's never neutral. Neutral. The church of Jesus Christ is, you got to hear me right here. Please hear me. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be an inclusive community. That doesn't mean we accept ideologies. Inclusive means we love everyone. That's grace and that's truth. All are welcome. Jew, Gentile, male, female, free, uh, slave, or free—all of them—they're all welcome. But the church is not meant to be inclusive of ideas. There's a huge difference. Tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is. Understanding is. Civility is. Graciousness is. Mercy is. Humility is. Tolerance is not. You can love people and not be tolerant of those ideas. You can come alongside in humility. In church, we inside, we have to follow the way of the Lamb. Because here's the thing Babylon, the way of Babylon, will be tolerant until you no longer agree with its ideology. And then it's not tolerant anymore. It will be fiercely intolerant. So, church, there's a beautiful promise. I, this is hard to be on time. There's a beautiful promise, and I want you to see this. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Not just like, oh, that was great information. Listen, apply it. Repent obedience to what the Spirit says to the churches, not just Pergamum, churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Oh, that's so good. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life. It's almost as if he's saying, why do you eat At the food of table of idols? Why do you eat junk food? You're so full of junk food, you can't even appreciate the good stuff. Isaiah 55 Come to me, buy and eat. Don't spend your money on what does not satisfy. Jesus is promising you life in abundance the life your soul and your soma craves. It's in Him alone. Repent 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 and he says that he will give you a white stone what does that mean cultural there's like there's nine different meanings to this and i think it's all of them (laughs) nobody knows i'm like why not they all sound good It could be justification because in the court of law, if you were guilty, they'd give you a black stone. But if you were declared innocent, they would give you a white stone. But also it's a friendship stone because what would happen is if a friend were to depart from you for a while, you would break that stone in half and you would inscribe each other's names and you would give it to each other as a means of saying, I'm gonna be loyal and faithful to you. Hence why he says, he'll give you a new name. How cool is that? That Jesus is gonna give you a name that only you and him know. And it's gonna be like that nickname, like, I don't know, like I remember getting a by someone who I absolutely respected and he said it to me and it meant the world to me. Like the one who knows you and knows your heart, he's got a specific name for you. And then more likely, is gonna be on that white stone He's like, guys, I have life for you. Why would you eat at McDonald's when Terry Black's is right there? (laughs) I know that landed. If you're full of Big Macs, you're not going to want any great food because you're full of crap. Let's just call it what it is, the teaching of Balaam, teaching of Nicolaitans, it's crap. It's the teaching of the dragon. It's the culture of Babylon meant to to seduce your heart away from the lamb. And Jesus in his grace will speak truth to you. He will cut you to heal you, to give you life. So during this time of worship, we're gonna have our prayer and care team off to the sides here. If you are in need of confession, or like you man, you're like, man, I don't know. Whatever it is, something's stirred in your heart, like this is what I need to be stirred. Maybe it's the love has grown cold. Maybe you like kind of resonate with one of the attributes of Babylon, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that actually is here in me. Maybe you want to pray for a loved one. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you, friends, take advantage of this opportunity because I want to share with you a passage in James 4. And it's a, it's a hard verse. It says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? There is no neutral ground. Worship is never neutral. And if you keep reading in James 4, he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know what that is? The humble? is those who are willing to confess. Those who are willing to confess that there was some love in them for the things of this earth. He says like he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Prayer is an act of submission. It It's a beautiful act. Draw near to God. Here's the promise. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Do we grieve over the influence that Babylon might have in our hearts and in the church? Humble yourselves before the Lord. And there's no greater promise than this. He will exalt you. You come in humility and brokenness. And the way I picture this exaltation is him coming down, picking up underneath your chin, moving you so you can connect eyes with him. I love you. I've given you a white stone. And I got a name for you. And it's far more beautiful than anything this world can offer. So Jesus, I ask that you would just move and minister to our hearts. Speak to us. Move in our hearts, now, In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm gonna ask the prayer and care team to come on up.